to my little friend. Und herzlich willkommen, meine deutschen Freunde. And to everyone else, hello and welcome to episode 45 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the podcast covering all sorts of rubbish in the hopes of misleading and generally confusing people as part of a long-term desire that they end up in hell. Hey, what are you doing? Get, get away from that microphone. Ach nein. Sorry about that, people. I am your host, Glenn Peoples, host of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the best podcast in the entire world. That was evil, Glenn. And how appropriate for him to show up today, since this episode is about the Evil God Challenge, where we ask, what if God is really bad? Actually, the question is more like, is there any reason to think that God is good rather than evil? But that's not really all that catchy. Not all that long ago, an article was published, written by Stephen Law uh, of Heathrop College, called The Evil God Challenge. In it, He argued that there is no better reason to believe in an evil, cruel, sadistic God than there is to believe in the good God of Christianity. But since we find the idea of an evil God wildly implausible, he said, and because the evidence for either God is equally strong, that's his argument, we should likewise think that the existence of the Christian God is also wildly implausible. Now, I recently had the pleasure of discussing the evil God challenge with Stephen and also with our host, Justin Briley on the Unbelievable Radio Show, where I had a thing or two to say about how a moral argument tips the scales in favor of a good God. And I'll say a little about that here, as well as, well as looking at a couple of other issues as well. Is the evil God challenge a good one? Is it right? No. But that on its own might not be very convincing. So let's get on to the rest of the episode so you can hear why I say that. There are a few quite old arguments for the existence of God that have come to be called the classical arguments for theism. Arguments like the first cause argument or the cosmological argument, the design argument or the teleological argument, or the ontological argument as used by Anselm of Canterbury, uh, René Descartes, and more recently Alvin Plantinga. Now, of course, when you're using one of these arguments or any argument for the existence of God, you have to be realistic about what it will establish if it's sound. You might establish that there's a necessarily existing, all-powerful, intelligent being who created and designed the universe, but that's not the same as showing that Christianity in all of its fullness is true. These aren't arguments for, say, the truth of every proposition in the Nicene Creed. Because of the limited scope of these arguments, It would be a bit pointless, kind of silly, to complain that they fail to establish all the things that Christians believe. Now that seems kind of obvious, but sometimes the critics of Christianity don't seem to appreciate it. Uh, Richard Dawkins, for example, comments, and I quote, Even if we allow the dubious luxury of arbitrarily conjuring up a Terminator to an infinite regress and giving it a name simply because we need one, 
There is absolutely no reason to endow that Terminator with any of the properties normally ascribed to God. Omnipotence, omniscience, goodness, creativity of design, to say nothing of such human attributes as listening to prayers, forgiving sins, and reading innermost thoughts. End quote. Now in isolation, we can, we can grant that that's true enough. The sorts of classical arguments that Dawkins is dismissing give no specific reasons to believe that God forgives sin or reads thoughts, for example. But since those arguments were never intended to do so, that's just not important. We could just say to, to Dawkins, well, so what? Stephen Law starts out with this fairly unimportant observation, but he takes it one step further. The next step is when he says this, and I quote, Perhaps there are grounds for supposing that the universe was created by an intelligent being. But at this point in time, the suggestion that this being is omnipotent, omniscient, and maximally good seems to me hardly more reasonable than the suggestion that he is omnipotent, omniscient, and maximally evil. His depravity is without limit. His cruelty knows no bounds. There is no other god or gods, just this supremely wicked being. Call this the evil god hypothesis. End quote. Now I know Stephen's an atheist. He doesn't really believe that the universe was created by an intelligent evil being. All he's doing here is granting that claim for argument's sake, namely that the universe was created by an intelligent being. So there's the question he raises. Why think that just because there's a god, that god has to be thought of as good? Now that's not the end of the evil god challenge. Here's how the challenge gets unpacked. Some people appeal to the problem of evil or the problem of suffering as evidence against the existence of a good God. This isn't only a problem of human suffering, of course. There have been countless years of animal suffering, tearing each other to pieces just to live, dying from illness and injury and so on. And then, of course, there is a phenomenon of human suffering, people dying from really awful diseases, the number of people dying from dysentery alone being enormous, just as one particularly nasty example, children dying at a very young age, losing their own lives and having their poor parents look on in helpless grief, You've got natural disasters, animal attacks, people attacking and torturing people, exploitation, drug addiction, alcoholism, the list goes on. The point is, there has been a really great amount of suffering. It's likely that you've also heard of what's been called a theodicy, which means a defense of God, a defense against the charges brought against God. I won't go into all the theodicies that have been put out there, largely because I probably don't know them, just an outline of the kind of theodicies that are used. One familiar example is the free will defense. If God wants people to freely love him, then he has to, as it were, cut the puppet strings. But of course, once God does that, then there's the possibility of people freely choosing to do evil rather than good. Evil, that is their own responsibility. Now, that, that's going to work in a large number of cases, but not really in cases of natural evil like you know disease or natural disasters. You know, free will doesn't really enter into those scenarios. So then there's the soul-making or character-building theodicy, which argues that there are certain character traits that it's good for us to have, but which we couldn't develop were it not for a certain amount of suffering. Maybe suffering in the world needs to exist for the benefit of human spiritual and moral development, which a good God may well want. Or there's this other idea that a good God might allow evil if in doing so he brings about some good that would only arise in the face of suffering or evil. Things like bravery, mercy, or compassion would be examples of these traits. And there are other theodicies that have been used as well. Still, they might not be a completely satisfying 
answer to the problem. And so the believer in a good God may well say, in fact, they have said, that while we can come up with plausible explanations for why a good God would allow quite a bit of suffering, we can't assume to fully know the mind of God. The very thought is ridiculous. So there is a bit of mystery involved. It's a safe bet that God's ways are higher than our ways, and maybe we can't explain all evil. The immense gap between our knowledge and understanding and God's is the reason that we can't explain it all. But the existence of theodicies, as well as the knowledge that God's ways are probably a lot higher than ours, may certainly take much of the intellectual sting out of the problem of evil. You might say, okay, in principle there may be an answer here, as long as we have other reasons for supposing that God is good. So let's say that because of those other reasons we have, and because of the theodicies, you're not ultimately bothered by the problem of evil as much as you might dislike the existence of suffering. And Stephen asks us to imagine, let's say that you've got an argument against the existence of an all-powerful but malevolent God, namely, there's just too much good in the world. Just look around you, you might say, there's love, there's beauty, there's happiness, there's the grandeur of the universe and so on. An evil God, you might say, just wouldn't create or sustain such a wonderful place. This isn't the problem of evil, it's the reverse, the problem of good. Given the amount of good in the world, it's absurd to be a believer in an evil God, right? Well, here's where things get a bit more interesting in the evil God challenge. Remember those theodicies that Christians used that I was mentioning a while ago? Well, just a few moments ago. Well, now, Dr. Law says, the evil God believer can reverse them and use them as well. After all, evil, that is cruel deeds that are freely chosen, are much more evil in moral terms than evil done by a robot. So an evil God would want to cut the strings and give people free will and the capacity to do even greater evil than they could otherwise do. But this runs the risk that they may choose good rather than evil. Or, whereas a Christian might talk about the problem of evil as a soul-making enterprise, the evil God-believer can talk about the problem of goodness as a soul-destroying exercise. They might say that evil God allows us to experience so much good so that it will provide a contrast with evil, allowing us to appreciate just how horrible it really is. So, for example, evil God allows us to experience the unconditional love of our children just so that we can appreciate all the terrible things that might happen to them, hopefully, evil God might say, including their untimely death. Or, they, these believers might say that actually evil God has to allow some good because there are some evils that depend on the existence of good. Take jealousy. In order to be jealous or covetous of something good that another person has, then it helps if what they have really is good and brings them happiness. So goodness and happiness exist here just to provide the opportunity for things like covetousness, envy or lust. The evil God believer has theodicies to explain why evil God might allow so much good, just like a Christian has theodicies to explain why their God might allow so much evil. And so all things considered, Stephen Law says, there is a symmetry between the case for an evil God and the case for a good God. Classical arguments like the first cause argument or the design argument say nothing about God's character, so they offer symmetrical support for a good or evil God. They offer support both ways. The problem of evil and the problem of good may count against an e a good God and an evil God, respectively, but believers in a good God and believers in an evil God have just as much of an ability to wheel in theodicies to account for all this, along with the acceptance that they don't expect to fully understand God's ways.
Dr. Law's paper uses the helpful analogy of scales. Take a set of scales, the kind of scales carried by that famous blindfolded statue of justice. In fact, take two sets of scales. One set weighs the evidence for good God. One weighs the evidence for evil God. On the set of scales for good God, we put the classical arguments on one side as evidence in favour, and then we put all the evidence from evil and suffering on the other side as evidence against. On the side of the scale term, uh, containing evidence in favour, we now add those theodicies, all the ones that defenders of classical theism have ever come up with, as well as the consideration that God's ways can't fully be known. This, many classical theists say, at least balances the scales enough to make the problem of evil not all that devastating after all. But now look at the scales weighing the evidence for and against an evil God. On the one side, you put the classical arguments from a first cause and fine-tuning and so on. Remember, these, according to Stephen Law, su support belief in an evil God no less than they support belief in a good God, so the evil God believer gets to use them on the scales too. Now on the other side of the scale, you put the evidence against an evil God, namely the problem of good, all the good stuff in the world. And now we put back on the other side of the scale all the reverse theodicies that the believer in an evil God might use, along with, again, the acceptance that God's ways are, frankly, a bit beyond us. But, and this is the crucial part of the evil God challenge, and I don't want to get it wrong, so I'll quote from uh, the paper, The Evil God Challenge, verbatim, and I quote, Now most of us, theists included, consider the evil God hypothesis highly unreasonable. We suppose that there is little of any substance to place on the left-hand side of the scale, and that when the boulder that is the problem of good is added, the scale lurches violently to the right, notwithstanding the effects of any reverse theodicy helium balloons we might try to attach. Yet adherents of the good God hypothesis typically suppose the good God scale far more evenly balanced. To believe in a good God, they think, is not like believing in fairies, Santa, or indeed an evil God. When this scale is properly loaded and the pointer observed, they say, we find it points to not unreasonable, or even quite reasonable. In short, those who embrace the good God hypothesis typically reject the symmetry thesis. The challenge I am presenting to those who believe in the God of classical monotheism, then, is to explain why, if belief in an evil God is highly unreasonable, should we consider belief in a good God significantly more reasonable? We might call this the evil God challenge, end quote. So the point is, and this is my summary now, look you who believe in a good God, you have all your theodicies and ways of defending belief in a good God and you think that works fine, but you find the case for an evil God intuitively ridiculous. Why don't you treat the case for a good God the same way since the evidence is just as good? And there it is. That's the question we face. Are there any significant reasons to think that God is good rather than evil. If not, and we think that belief in an evil God is absurd, in spite of the theodicies that could be offered for it, then consistently, surely, calls us to regard belief in a good God as absurd as well. There are probably a few ways to approach this challenge. And because a number of the issues are involved in one another, they are sort of entangled with each other, it's difficult to know where the best place to start really is. I'm going to structure my comments this way. First, I will look at the issue of the problem of evil and whether or not it can be flipped in the way that the evil God challenge suggests. This will involve a foray into some issues that Dr. Law's paper really ignores altogether. I think that's one of its major weaknesses. 
issues in classical philosophy about the relationship between greatness, goodness, and being. I can't go into everything in that territory because we'd be here for hours, weeks, months, maybe at least a lot longer than I'm prepared to spend. But I'll just try to explain that the evil god challenge really doesn't do enough philosophical groundwork at this stage and needs lots of improvement. Next, I will say that actually a Christian can afford to grant for argument's sake that when it comes to the problem of evil and good, the theodicies and reverse theodicies, sure, everything is evenly matched. The evil god believer can defend himself against the problem of good and vice versa. The scores are nil all. Those problems don't defeat either view of God. But that's not important, since there are good reasons for thinking that God is good and evil beyond this. And then I will look at two such kinds of reason. The moral argument, which I had the pleasure of discussing with Stephen and our host, uh, Justin Briley, on the unbelievable show, as well as historical arguments from the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'll look at Dr. Law's attempts to anticipate and reply to those arguments, and I'll say that actually those responses may well represent the very weakest link of the evil God challenge. So there's the battle plan. Now, on to the fight, as it were. Let's start with what I will call the classical response. You could say we're starting at the deep end. This first issue is the most complicated, and compared to the time and attention that it deserves, my comments will be painfully brief. It has to do with our very understanding of what it is for something to be the greatest of all beings and what evil is. Let me paint with some fairly broad strokes in historical and theological terms. There is a very strong tradition in what we might call classical theology that construes God as the greatest possible being. The tradition I have in mind includes the likes of Athanasius, Gregory of Nyssa, Anselm of Canterbury, Augustine, and it's there in the scholastic tradition quite strongly as well, most clearly represented, of course, by Thomas Aquinas. In fact, pretty much any philosopher of religion with any Platonic or Aristotelian tendencies for the majority of church history thought this way. In fact, not just church history, but classical history as well. This is the way you, you find Aristotle and Plato thinking. According to this view, God is absolutely simple. And involved in this is the idea that all of his attributes are really one and they are inseparable. And when we say that God is the greatest of all beings, we're not saying that God has existence and God has greatness. Because being and greatness are bound up with one another in the sense that to, to be is greater than not to be. It could be said that we're claiming that God has being more greatly than anything else has being. God is pure being, and hence pure greatness. Something that can't be said of anything else. We've got being, yes, I've got being, you've got being, Stephen Law has being, but that being is just a reflection of God's being, and hence our greatness is just a pale reflection of God's greatness, and our being and our greatness is derived from God's being and greatness, which are one in God. This idea has been hammered out in many words in the classical philosophy of Aristotle, and I've got no way of capturing it all here. But one central idea involved here is that there are not many transcendentals, but one. So things like the good, the true, the beautiful, things that are called transcendentals in classical philosophy, are not distinct things. They are one thing. 
And to the extent that anything at else anything else at all has any degree of goodness or beauty, it does so by resembling this one greatness that is God's. Listen to the way that Thomas Aquinas summed it up in his Summa Theologica, in the argument that he called the fourth way. He said, and I quote, The fourth way is taken from the gradation to be found in things. Among beings there are some more and some less good, true, noble, and the like, but more and less are predicated of different things according as they resemble in their different ways, something which is the maximum, as a thing is said to be hotter according as it more nearly resembles that which is hottest, so that there is something which is truest, something best, something noblest, and consequently something which is uttermost being. For those things that are greatest in truth are greatest in being, as it is written in Metaphysics 2. That's a reference to Aristotle, by the way. He goes on. Now the maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus, as fire, which is the maximum heat, is the cause of all hot things. Therefore, there must also be something which is to all beings the cause of their being, goodness, and every other perfection, and this we call God. End quote. Now, never mind just for now if you don't think much of the fourth way as an argument that God is real. That's not the point I'm making just here. All I want to do is briefly explain what classical theologians thought about God's attributes. Following on from this, if God is the greatest of all beings and possess, possesses being in the utmost, all other things having their being derivatively, this lends itself powerfully to a way of thinking about evil or badness. If goodness is essentially godlikeness contained in God's being, along with beauty, greatness, and being, then evil is the undoing of goodness. It is the lack of goodness, the lack of beauty, and ultimately the lack of being, all of those things being one. Another quotation, this time from my absolute favorite work of the Church Fathers, Athanasius' work, The Incarnation of the Word. Here Athanasius is talking about the fact that death came to mankind through sin, and ultimately our non-existence is the result. He says of human beings, and I quote, For transgression of the commandment was turning them back into their natural state, so that just as they have had their being out of nothing, so also, as might be expected, they might look for corruption into nothing in the course of time. For if, out of a former state of non-existence, they were called into being by the presence and loving kindness of the word, it followed naturally that when men were bereft of the knowledge of God and returned back to that to what was not, bracketed comment, for what is evil is not, but what is good is, they should, since they derive their being from God who is, be everlastingly bereft even of being. In other words, that they should be disintegrated and abide in death and corruption. End quote. You can see the view expressed quite clearly there. The closer to God and God-likeness a thing is, the closer to the root of existence it is, and the more truly good it is, and the more truly it is, that is, the more truly it has being. But as we move away from that center, that source of being and goodness, we become evil and we start to lack being, and our very being degrades as we tend towards non-being, towards nothing altogether. 
Basil, Gregory of Nyssa's brother, speaks of evil in terms of, quote, falling away from the good, end quote. And Gregory himself, just like Athanasius, often spoke of evil as non-being, a lack of the being that is goodness. This, according to the classical outlook, is the essence of badness. As contemporary philosopher Robert Merrihew Adams observes, the main traditions of Western theism had no problem with the idea of a transcendent good identified with God, but the idea of an equal and opposite transcendent, transcendent bad just didn't make any sense. Instead, badness was always understood in relation to the good. He notes, and I quote, Historically, the most important attempt to explain the bad in terms of a single relation to the good has identified badness with a privation of goodness, that is to say, with an absence of goodness that ought to be there. End quote. Now, the qualification, that ought to be there, is important. It's, it's not good that I can't play the violin, for example, but neither is it bad, because, well, there's, who says that I'm supposed to be able to play the violin? It's not necessarily a good that I ought to have. Uh, Aquinas made this point, and I quote, If a man has no wings, that is not an evil for him, because he was not born to have them. Even if a man does not have blonde hair, that is not an evil, for though he may have such hair, it is not something that is necessarily due him but it is an evil if he has no hands. For these he is born to, and should have, if he is to be perfect. Yet this defect is not an evil for a bird. End quote. You get the idea. We ought to have mutual co- cooperation and respect among people, for example. But when that breaks down, we have conflict and war. When proper order breaks down and we lack goodness, we end up with a bad state of affairs, that is, a damaged version of a good state of affairs. If you're looking for a relatively short, digestible introduction to this view of evil, as well as a defense against some objections, I've had a look around for an article that might do the trick, and I would recommend an article written in 1982, published in the International Journal for the Philosophy of Religion by Bill Anglin and Stuart Getz, that's G-O-E-T-Z, or Z. The paper is called Evil is Privation. So, enough for now with the broad description of this classical view. Let's consider what the evil God challenge has to say that might actually be considered a challenge to those who hold this point of view. This is a highly relevant question, primarily because six times in his paper, Dr. Law specifies that his challenge is directed towards classical theism. He could have said theism generally, or all kinds of theism that exist, but he chose to use the qualifier classical. But what really happens if you pose this challenge to classical theism? Is it a challenge? For a start, think of classical theism's take on the relationship between the divine attributes as all being one, and of goodness, greatness, and being going hand in hand. Is it going to be any sort of challenge at all? to say to a classical theist, you believe that God is all-powerful and good. Very well, but surely based on all the evidence and arguments, you've got to concede that God might just as well be all-powerful, the greatest of all beings, and yet not good at all. Well, as you can appreciate straight away, that's going to bounce right off. That challenge isn't even going to get off the ground. That claim simply isn't compatible with all the metaphysical baggage that goes along with classical theism. In classical theism, it is literally impossible. It's conceptual nonsense 
for the greatest of all beings who has being to the utmost degree, who is as great as greatness can be, to not be good at all. Notice too that the burden of proof rests with the person who raises the evil God challenge to show that it is a challenge to the theist in question. It would be no good for someone in, in Stephen Law's position to say, well, I just don't buy the classical view on the relationship between goodness and greatness or the classical stance on the unity of transcendentals. I reject classical metaphysics. Prove that it's true. No one has to prove that it's true. The evil God challenge is supposed to be something that challenges the view that the theist already holds. And quite clearly in this case, it is not. It falls flat right at the outset and the classical theist does not even have to give it a moment's consideration. However, let's suppose that the classical theist is feeling especially generous. Maybe it's be nice to an atheist day. And they say, okay, Stephen, you've put some time into this challenge. So let's look at it for a little bit longer. Let's see how that problem of evil can be reversed into the problem of good and the theodicies can be reversed. That would be a nice thing to do. But as soon as we so much as look at the problem of evil and the so-called problem of good, from a classical theist's point of view, the evil God challenge starts once again quaking and coming apart at the joints. You can sensibly pose the problem of evil and also come up with theodicies, because there does seem to be a fair bit of privation of good around. And all the standard defenses of God here still work the same way. But you cannot... Just turn things around and imagine an evil God with a problem of good on his hands. Any being that is God is unlike anything that is bad to the extent that it is bad. So you could never pin classical theism down by suggesting that perhaps God is bad and he's got the problem of good to explain. That's not what the classical theist and the evil God believer will argue about. They will argue about whether or not the classical metaphysics that classical theism depends on is true. So until he's willing to have that discussion, uh, he can, Stephen Law can stop thinking that he's actually got a challenge for classical theism. He has nothing resembling a challenge to classical theism. The evil God challenge article has nothing to say to a classical theist. Fails, doesn't get off the ground, it's nothing. That's the first major thing to say about it. But you might say, Glenn, it's a bit too easy. After all, lots of Christians today aren't familiar with the metaphysical background of classical theism, and they don't think that transcendentals are really one, and they don't think about the relationship between being and greatness and good and so on. And that's true, they don't. The classical theism that I've been referring to is the Thomistic view, that of Thomas Aquinas, but I know full well that most Catholics, average churchgoers, know little or nothing about it. I mean, they're lay people. What do you expect? But... The reply that a classical theist, theologian, or philosopher could give is, well, that's their problem, Glenn. Classical theism in all its glory is there to be learned about, and once Catholics and other Christians have learned about it and embraced it, they can just ignore the evil God challenge. Fair enough. Still, there are some Christians, generally orthodox in their theology and very knowledgeable about metaphysics and about the things that I've been discussing, who don't embrace classical theism in the sense that I've been discussing it. William Lane Craig's an example. So the remainder of what I say today will take the stance of saying, okay, let's say that we don't take the classical theist route. Let's say, however false we might think it is, that we can imagine a God who is malevolent. Let's just ask the question, after we've considered the evil God challenge, can we come up with any reasons for thinking that God is good and not evil? 
and assuming we're not going to be classical theists about this, I'm going to say, and please remember, purely for the sake of argument, that you can just flip the problem of evil and talk about the problem of good. And I'm going to grant for argument's sake that just as the Christian can answer the problem of evil in the ways discussed earlier, so the believer in an evil God can answer the problem of good. And let's just agree for fun that neither the problem of evil nor the problem of good can rule either view of God out, and the scores are therefore even. After all, Stephen's article didn't actually offer any arguments for why the Christian's theodicies or his appeal to mystery are flawed, so let's allow the evil God believer to play the same game. After all, we don't infer what God is like by tallying up the amount of good or evil in the world. We have other reasons for thinking that God is good. And what sort of reasons might those be? Well, let's look at the moral argument. In his article, Stephen did say that a moral argument may be the quote-unquote most promising way of addressing the evil God challenge, and I think it goes a long way towards meeting that challenge. I've discussed the moral argument before in the podcast, and I'm not about to lay out the full argument here. But in essence, the moral argument is the argument that unless God existed, there would not be any moral facts, any objective moral duties and values. But since there are objective moral duties and values, as Stephen agrees, it follows that God exists. In a recent blog entry called The Conditional Premise of the Moral Argument, I said a lot more about that first premise. Unless God exists, then moral facts don't exist either. But the real issue here is, suppose you're a Christian theist who, unlike, sorry, who like me, thinks that the moral argument is plausible. Is there symmetrical support for an evil God to be found in the moral facts that we encounter on a daily basis? So, is Stephen going to now say, ha-ha, the evil God believer can appeal to the moral argument as well? Well, interestingly, he goes completely silent on that point. He says not a single word about it. When it came to the cosmological or fine-tuning argument, he was quite happy telling readers that those arguments supported an evil God's existence just as much as they support the Christian God's existence, but he doesn't say anything about that when it comes to the argument that I just outlined, the moral argument. Instead, he says something quite different. Instead, he tries to undermine the argument itself. He tries to claim that it's an unsound argument or that there are problems with it. He does this in two ways. First of all, he says that it's really controversial, even among Christian philosophers, whether or not the moral argument is sound. He says, and I quote, however, to date it remains, even among theists, controversial whether such an argument, sorry, whether any such argument exists, end quote. When I discussed this with him, he mentioned several times that Richard Swinburne doesn't accept the argument. Well, that's kind of a so what, in my opinion. The first premise Stephen called, and I quote, dodgy. When I asked him to give some reasons for thinking that it was dodgy, the only reason he gave is that lots of people don't accept it. Lots of philosophers don't accept it. I'm going to just set that first response aside as irrelevant. Lots of people don't accept atheism either. But Dr. Law's main line of argument, and I think his only really significant line of argument against the moral argument, is to appeal to the Euthyphro dilemma. This was actually pretty surprising to me because the objection from the Euthyphro dilemma has been well and truly answered so many times. The objection is really simple. Does God will or command things because they are right? Or are things right because God wills or commands them? Incidentally, this is not an objection 
to a moral argument of a theism. This is an objection to a divine command theory of ethics. And you can embrace the moral argument without embracing a divine command theory of ethics. This objection is kind of confused. It attacks the wrong target. But since he raised the objection, I'll take it to pieces anyway. That's the dilemma. Does God command things because they're right, or are they right because God commands them? If you take the first option, law says, then you end up saying that God is redundant, since right and wrong are already there. They exist quite apart from God's commands. But if you say that things are right because God commands them, then my goodness, morality is completely arbitrary, and God could command us to put babies in blenders, and that would be a right thing to do. The Euthyphro dilemma, he says, and I quote, constitutes a major obstacle to the construction of a moral argument for the existence of a specifically good rather than evil God. Again, it doesn't. It's, it's an objection to divine command ethics, which is independent of the moral argument, but let's ignore that mistake. To this I just say, have you been living under a rock? Responses to this alleged problem, this objection to divine command ethics, have been written and published for decades in modern philosophy of religion. God might well command things because they are good, but this doesn't make moral rightness and wrongness independent of God, because goodness in general isn't the same thing as moral rightness. Maybe, as Christians believe, God loves the good and beautiful, and that in fact God is the template or paradigm of goodness, and his commands reflect the good and beautiful. But moral obligation, on the other hand, only arises through God's commands. So the first option doesn't have the problem that Stephen Law suggests, but the second option doesn't have the problem that he suggests either. The second option is that moral obligation is grounded in God's commands. And here the objection is that this makes morality arbitrary, and it means that God's commands could just be terrible. But in reality, this option doesn't make God's commands arbitrary, that is, without reason. God might have all sorts of reasons for commanding as he does, as long as those reasons do not morally require him to command as he does. For example, if God loves the good and God wants what is best for people because he loves them, then God's commands will reflect those facts. To think that just because God has no moral requirements, then he must act in a completely arbitrary manner is quite unwarranted. Stephen's article, after identifying the Euthyphro dilemma as an allegedly serious problem for grounding morality in God, doesn't interact with any of the responses to, to this alleged problem that are in the literature for everyone to see, so I can only assume that he hasn't read them, which is strange, since he published one such article written by me in the journal that he edits called Think, Philosophy for Everyone, in early 2010, or else he has read them, he's read them, but he just doesn't have any responses to them, or at least no responses that he thinks he needs to offer. So in response to the moral argument, all we've got is this brief mention of the Euthyphro dilemma, which A isn't a response to the moral argument, it's a response to a divine command theory of ethics, and B, he's actually been rebutted dozens of times in the literature already. But Stephen does seek to address a different kind of moral argument, which I'll call the moral sense argument. He says that some people claim that the existence of our moral sense shows that God is good. Now, he doesn't say who says this, but let's assume he's right and some people say this. But this argument fails, says Stephen, Merely having a moral sense, he says, does not favor the hypothesis that God is good rather than malevolent. After all, and I quote, by providing us with both free will and knowledge of good and evil, an evil God can allow for the very great evil of our freely performing evil actions in the full knowledge 
that they are indeed evil. End quote. So really, the reply goes, a moral sense is just knowledge of what is right and what is wrong in the way that we might know that some things are red, blue, short, tall, warm, cold, and so on. And having moral knowledge merely enables us to choose evil or good. This is a fundamental mistake, uh, which I think shows up a real reading gap in the field of ethics, or at least meta-ethics. Our sense of morality is unlike our, our awareness of so many other things, like height, color, and so on, in that it has an inherently motivational character. It's not just a detached source of data in the way that Dr. Law's response to the moral sense argument would suggest. Philosophers, including David Hume, have been puzzled over this fact for centuries. Well, not Hume personally, he's dead, but philosophers like him have, have puzzled over this for centuries. He says, and I quote, Morals, sorry, he says that reason merely informs us, but by contrast, and I quote, morals excite passions and produce or prevent actions, end quote. Ethicist Michael Smith identifies this phenomenon of motivation as the moral problem because the motivational feature of moral knowledge is so undeniable, thereby making moral facts significantly unlike other facts. The very fact of having a moral opinion, says Smith, and I quote, is a matter of finding ourselves with a corresponding motivation to act, end quote. For atheist philosopher J.L. Mackey, the motivational quality of moral facts, that, quote, power when known automatically to influence the will, end quote, was one of the features of moral facts that made them, in his words, queer. The existence of a moral sense is not just the ability to know what is right and wrong, enabling us to sit back and decide which option we will take. Although, granted, people do evil things, they do so in spite of the moral sense, because the moral sense is what impels us to do, or at least approve of, those things that we judge to be morally right. And indeed, finding them to be morally right is a matter of finding ourselves approving of them and moved to do them, finding ourselves with a particular moral sense about them. Being attracted to certain actions may, of course, not be a sufficient condition of those actions being good. No one is suggesting that the moral sense is infallible. But holding actions in good esteem and being motivated to at least some extent to carry them out or see them carried out is something like a necessary condition of judging them to be morally right actions. When asking what my moral sense is like then, I'm asking... What kinds of things do I find myself motivated to do? What seems like the thing that I really should do? Of course, it's true that not everyone has exactly the same moral sense. Nonetheless, it has been pointed out numerous times that when it comes to foundational moral principles, people actually tend to agree more than they disagree. Questions like, is it right or is it at least virtuous to help those in need if we can do so? Should we, prima facie, respect the property rights of others? Should we be kind to others? Should we spread happiness or sorrow? All seem to have pretty obvious answers. And if somebody that we encounter habitually answers all these questions in a way opposite to how I think most of us would, we don't just disagree with them. We disapprove of them. The nature of the moral sense is such that we identify morally right acts, even in broad terms, by virtue of the fact that some feature of them commends themselves to us. And in the case of evil acts, they 
turn us off. The moral sense tells us what the moral facts are like by drawing us to certain kinds of actions and warding us away from others. To illustrate the point, we would all probably like to think of people at our funeral reflecting on our lives and saying that we were a good person rather than a really evil person. Few, if any of us, would appreciate being thought of as evil, which I think just underscores the fact that really we are attracted to the notion of goodness and repelled by the notion of evil. So the moral argument tells us that the existence of moral facts indicates that there is a God. This argument from moral sense moves on to the question of what God is like by asking what sort of moral facts there are. What is it that we would identify, sorry, why is it that we would identify cruel acts as generally wrong and loving acts as generally right? If our moral sense draws us to benevolent acts and principles over malevolent acts and principles, as I think it does for me, for you, for pretty much everyone you know, then our moral sense is evidence that God wants us to be benevolent rather than malevolent. It's easily more economical to think that God would want us to act lovingly rather than malevolently because this is what God likes than it would be to come up with a scenario in which God was really malevolent and didn't like love or kindness at all, but wanted us to be benevolent and kind and, and to love one another for some hidden malevolent purpose. So this cluster of arguments concerning morality, if successful, actually gives us good arguments for thinking that God is good, sorry, good grounds for thinking and good arguments, that God is good and not malevolent. And so it's quite important that Stephen Law's responses to them are such significant philosophical failures in his paper, because these arguments give us a very plausible way of overcoming the evil God challenge. Lastly, I want to say a thing or two about one other way of responding to the evil God challenge, namely the way that arises from what I'll call historical apologetics. In episode 42 of the podcast, I presented what has become known as the minimal facts approach to defending the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. I'm not going to present that again here, but you can check it out if you like. In fact, please do. But beyond that, for centuries there have been a huge number of books written in defense of the basic reliability of the gospel accounts of Jesus, and not just for his death and resurrection. Call all of this historical apologetics, which is there to defend the central claims of the Christian faith when it comes to who Jesus was and what he did. Stephen's paper on the evil God challenge acknowledges that such work is out there, but he actually offers no responses to the evidence itself. He does, however, try on two ways of saying that the historical evidence offers equal support for an evil God and a good God. In what I think is the less significant response, he says that if the historical evidence supported a good God, and I quote, why on earth would a good God produce these phenomena in such a way as to guarantee endless religious strife, end quote. Surely an evil God's the kind of being who would want such strife, hence the evidence is compatible with the existence of an evil God. The innuendo here, although it's never actually defended, is that the religious strife in the world is there because of the state of the historical evidence. Now this is an argument from left field without much going for it, I think. 
if the evidence is good, then the evidence is good regardless of how people react to it. The result of the evidence is quite different from the quality of the evidence and what it establishes. Okay? The argument is not everybody is persuaded by the evidence, ergo God is probably good. The argument rather is that the state of the evidence is such that if you examine it, you should conclude that Christ is genuinely who he claimed to be, and hence not just any God exists, but the good Christian God revealed to us in the person of Christ. Law's second argument here is more interesting. He presented it uh, chronologically as the first argument, but I think it's the more important one, important one to consider. He suggests that the evil God believer could just claim an effect that the evil God faked history to deceive us. He writes, and I quote, In response, we may again ask, does this historical evidence really fit the good God hypothesis better than the evil? Not if our evil God wishes to create the illusion that he is good in order to foster the deception outlined above. It may well be in his interest to fabricate misleading evidence about his own character. Okay, so what he says there is, yeah, okay, the evidence makes it look like the good God exists, but the evidence is all fake. Now, how should this kind of response be assessed? Notice that this suggested argument tells us how the evil God believer could reply to more or less any line of argument that God is good, not just an argument grounded in historical evidence. Any evidence in the world whatsoever can simply be said to be some sort of divine deception. No matter where you look, things just are not as they truly seem to be. You can see exactly what the facts look like, but they only look that way. And that's exactly what we might expect of an evil, tricky God is about. Now, you may be familiar with the idea uh, of a Cartesian demon. Now, this is the thought experiment um, conjured up by René Descartes, hence the name, in which none of our experiences are real, but they're all the product of a deceptive, the deceptive power of this demon. Well, the defense of the evil God hypothesis that Stephen Law suggests is like this. Believers in an evil God can conjure up something like this deceptive Cartesian demon at will to say that whatever real-world phenomenon you're appealing to, it's fake. And God is trying to get you to believe things that aren't true. It's in one sense like those, assuming these people really exist. I've heard people refer to them, but these people were critics, not, not friends who might say that God planted dinosaur fossils to test our faith. And that is just as reasonable a view of the, of the evidence, the geological and archaeological evidence, as is the belief that the earth is really old and there really were dinosaurs. Well, are those two views really on par? To respond to this line of argument, I'm going to draw on none other than Stephen Law. In a different piece of writing, so maybe this is Stephen Law B, who held a different view. In his recent book, Believing BS, he's got such a potty mouth, that's because he doesn't believe in objective morality, no doubt. He describes a tactic that he disapproves of, which he calls going nuclear. Now, going nuclear, Stephen says, and I quote, is an attempt to unleash an argument that lays waste to every position, bringing them all down to the same level of reasonableness, end quote. If a, 
if a person's position is taking a, quote, rational beating, Stephen says, as I happen to think the evil God challenges, then they, quote, can adopt the last-ditch tactic of employing this sceptical argument, end quote, allowing them to walk away with their head held high. Now, in this case, where Stephen tries to help the evil God believer escape historical apologetics, every interpretation of the evidence in the world around us is declared to equally support opposite views of God, since gods can trick us and just make the evidence say any old thing. The trouble in general with going nuclear, Stephen says, is that, quote, it's almost certainly an intellectually dishonest ruse, end quote. The person who presses the nuclear button never lives as though their approach is true in general. Sure, an evil god might want to trick us about all sorts of things. We presume they would, probably, being dishonest, nasty pieces of work. But the fact is, an evil god believer is going to employ ordinary inferences from the evidence in pretty much everything they do. They wouldn't pause before crossing the street wondering whether or not evil god is tricking them about where the cars are and what they're doing. They wouldn't hesitate before putting in a light bulb worrying about whether or not evil god is tricking them about whether or not the light is switched on and so on, you know, contrary to what their senses are telling them, to suddenly put on the skeptical hat when it comes to the evidence surrounding historical events in the first century, in first century Palestine, would be thoroughly disingenuous. Basically, what Stephen is asking us to accept is that a view that is grounded in historical evidence and the ordinary interpretation of historical evidence is neither more nor less plausible than a view that simply and knowingly overlooks the historical evidence, evidence, evidence that is incompatible with that view, out of a suspicion that history might be a great big hoax after all. Like others who try to go nuclear, I don't think Stephen actually believes this. And I certainly doubt that his everyday decision-making reflects a belief that both of these approaches to evidence are just as reasonable or sensible. He does not, in the end, think that both of these views are symmetrically plausible. He must, therefore, grant that historical apologetics, insofar as it offers support for the belief in the genuineness of Christ, offers evidence for a good God and not an evil God. Now, of course, he could decide to do some work and get his hands dirty and try to argue that the evidence is no good, but just as he never lifted a finger to show that there's something wrong with the theodicies against the problem of evil, and just as he never bothered to delve into the issues his arguments raise in regard to classical theology, and just as he never got around to offering a rebuttal of the moral argument, referring instead to an objection to divine command ethics that has been rebutted dozens of times, he doesn't spill a drop of ink arguing that the historical evidence for the, classical, for the Christian faith is no good. So where does all of this leave the evil God challenge? Well, in spite of everything I've said, I still recommend reading the article. And in fact, if I were teaching a class on philosophy of religion or in a Christian context, if I were teaching apologetics, I would make this paper required reading. It's good in the sense that it's well-written, it's enjoyable, it does raise an issue that thinking Christians probably should grapple with for themselves. What reasons are there for thinking that God is good? It's invigorating because there really haven't been many articles written along these lines, at least none recently. And I have to say it's also enjoyable because it's easy to find the seams where the evil God challenge starts coming apart. It's easy 
to identify where the arguments go wrong, which I think makes it an excellent teaching tool, albeit not in the manner intended by Stephen Law, but it does go wrong, and badly wrong. The evil god challenge, although aimed at classical theism, fails to even connect with the philosophical world of classical theology, and poses no challenge at all to anyone in that world. Once we overlook all that, it still has major shortcomings. It assumes that the problem of good and evil are comparable, and that we don't live in a basically good world touched by evil, or vice versa for that matter, something that I haven't even touched on today because of time constraints. It fails quite fundamentally to show that there are no major considerations that support the idea of a good God rather than an evil God, and where it recognizes such arguments, it interacts with them in a, in a painfully inadequate manner. When interacting with the, the moral argument, it misconstrues fundamental concepts and ethics and trots out one of the most commonly refuted arguments in the history of metaethics in appealing to the Euthyphro dilemma, and it seeks to escape the argument from historical apologetics only by being prepared to pull the pin and explode all of epistemology, lapsing into an absurd skepticism about the very world around us, a skepticism that is manifestly not genuine, but merely contrived for the sake of salvaging the evil god challenge. What started out as a worthy enterprise turns out to be propped up by very bad philosophy. And there we draw to a close, not just for episode 45, but for the year 2012. Another year has almost passed us by. As I speak these words, it is the wee hours of the 30th of December, Friday. It's 12.56 a.m. I'll be back in the new year. You are, as always, and I am completely genuine here, the greatest podcast and blog audience in the known universe. Keep your eye on the blog, over at the Beretta website, www.beretta-online.com. As we are still in the Christmas season, still within those 12 days, the band will take us out on an appropriately Christmassy note until you hear from me again. This is Glenn Peoples saying, take care, and I am signing off from another episode and another year of... Say hello to my little friend!